0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics
1: Podcast.
0: Tonight on Primetime Politics, the impact of closing Roxham Road.
2: This will only drive persecuted asylum seekers on a more dangerous pathway.
0: With that and all irregular border crossings now closed as a means of seeking refuge, What will it mean for the thousands of migrants who believed Canada would be more humane? Coming up, we'll speak to members of parliament about the decision and whether or not it was the correct one. Also...
1: No new
3: taxes. We have continued to grow the economy in meaningful ways for everyone.
0: Getting ready for tomorrow's federal budget. What are the priorities for Canadians across the country? Do they match what the Trudeau Liberals already say they'll prioritize? We'll speak to
2: Poll's analyst, Eric Grenier. And... Delays in decisions usually bring out increased costs.
0: We'll talk with Canada's Auditor General about her first four reports for 2023. Things looking good in the renovation of Parliament Hill, but some serious questions about global affairs and gender equity. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. It did not take long for federal officials to close Roxham Road, the RCMP shutting down that irregular border crossing, just hours after a revision to the safe third country agreement was announced. The amendment makes it possible to turn back refugees wherever they try to enter the country, legal or otherwise, as the agreement says a refugee claim must be made in the first country in which a migrant lands. The move dashes the dreams of thousands of people who have risked just about about everything to get to Canada, and one advocate for asylum seekers reportedly describes the move as inhumane. Well, to talk more about Roxham Road and the deal to turn away irregular border crossers, we're now joined by two members of parliament, Francesco Cerbera, the Liberal MP for the Ontario Riding of Woodbridge Vaughan, and Peter Julian is the NDP member for Burnaby Westminster, also the NDP house leader. Hello to both of you. Good to be here. Mr. Mr. Uh, Julian, Mr. Michael, and you, uh, Mr. Julian, I'm going to get you to start us off because really, it's your party that is expressing concern over this policy direction. Now, as you know, the Quebec government has been calling on Ottawa to close Roxham Road. So now that has happened, why your opposition?
4: Because we actually, the federal government hasn't put into place the provisions uh, that are needed, and and that's suspending the Safe Third Country Agreement. The the reason why Roxham Road has uh, been an artery for refugees Uh, seeking refuge in Canada is because the Safe Third Country Agreement doesn't allow them to move through any regular border crossings, and this is really what's required. We're talking about tens of thousands of people that are fleeing persecution. Uh, Jenny Kwan today in the House of Commons raised the issue of Seju Mohammed, uh he is a, a gay man who uh would have been killed in his own country um his was refused refuge in the United States and came to Canada and 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 he almost died making that crossing he made it to Canada and of course uh, uh ultimately his refugee claim was completely valid and he was accepted in Canada but we're not allowing the, the Trudeau government is not allowing uh for the regular border crossings that will allow people to apply for the stat- the status of refugee and so closing Wrexham uh, Road basically uh, doesn't allow for the kind of provision that is so important that these refugees are are, are fleeing uh, in many cases certain death uh, and 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 hardship and possible torture and violations of human rights me- uh, the least we can do is provide, them to come regularly to Canada?
0: Well, you know, Mr. Cerbera, the, the criticism has been that now that this, this deal has been struck, it will only force those migrants, those people who are trying to get into Canada to seek refuge, to, to essentially seek out more dangerous ways to get here in the dead of night, more remote areas, harder areas to cross. Are you not worried about a potential loss of life as a result of this policy direction?
3: No, Michael, thank you for that question. Uh, look, the United States and Canada have a shared responsibility when it comes to migration and migration of individuals. Um, and on that, on that respect, what we've done is we've come to an agreement with the United States, expanded the safe third, third-party 3rd country agreement to allow and to encourage regular migration. Excuse me, I'm going to take my, my glasses off. One of my eyes is disturbing me a second. Um, and, and with that, what we want to see is regular migration occur uh, coming to Canada. And we know, um, this is for a second, And we know with the agreement, what we will put in place is a program which will allow 15,000 individuals from the impacted area, Central and uh, Central America, South America, to find regular migration to to Canada. What we don't want to encourage is irregular migration. And and Mr. Julian knows that. And the same provisions that apply for when people seek asylum at regular border crossings, those exemptions, unaccompanied minors, people with family in Canada, that remains in place. What the the agreement does, it standardizes and modernizes the safe third-party country agreement for basically all border crossings coming into Canada. That's the right thing to do. It's the reasonable thing to do. It's demonstrating leadership. And again, Canada and Canadians are compassionate people. We're a compassionate country. We take in more resettled refugees than any other country currently on an absolute basis. We are doing our part. And we are, we are helping mm-hmm. those individuals, the, the most vulnerable, and we'll continue to do so.
0: Okay, Mr. Julian, how do you respond to that then? Because the government has promised to accept 15,000 migrants as a way of addressing irregular border crossings. It's not as if they've closed Roxham Road, said people cannot cross in other parts of the country, without at least providing that valve. How do you respond to that?
4: Well... First off, there's no information about those numbers. Secondly, though, I underscore over 40,000 people went through Roxham Road last year. So obviously the the number of refugees, uh, most the vast majority of them being uh, valid refugee claimants. So what we're doing is, even if that, that number had any uh, validity, the numbers that the Liberals are are putting forward, uh, we are basically closing doors to valid refugee climates, people who are fleeing prosecu- persecution, uh, fleeing possible violence or even death. And and the reality is, uh, Mr. Saubert, I think, made the NDP's case uh, very clearly when he said, you know, we don't want to have irregular border crossings. Uh, the way to do that is to suspend the safe third-country agreement, as Jagmeet Singh has called for, as Jenny Kwan, our immigration critic, has called for, so that those legitimate refugee claimants can cross through regular land crossings. And, and this is what the, the, the Trudeau government refuses to do, the right thing, hmm. uh, to ensure that legitimate refugees, rather than being sent back to their own country uh, because, uh, well, I, and I, I facing like certain the, persecution like it, or I death, like What they can do is go to a regular border crossing and seek asylum in Canada. Mr. Cerbera. Uh,
3: Michael, I do need to correct something because there is something that uh, I know uh, the NDP immigration critic mentioned and that um, MP Julian mentioned. That is not actually correct. Uh, When an individual individual comes to the Canadian border, and it is through an irregular migration process, not a regular migration process, uh, the person is returned to the United States to continue their asylum claim. The person is not, the individual is not, and I wish to repeat that, returned to their home country. The person is returned to the United States where they will continue their asylum claim. So I do want to put that on the record because I do not want in any way uh, for any of our viewers, viewers to understand that the person can be returned to uh, their home country to face persecution, to face violence, or anything to that extent. They are returned to the United States. Again, and it goes back to the point of the United States and Canada having mature, relationship where we we enter negotiations we look at the situation we assess the situation and we come to an agreement and collaborate together and how best to ha- handle what really is a migration issue which we see all over the world and again canadians in canada we're very we're welcoming we want immigration to come to canada we want it done through a normal process regular migration progress, a regular immigration process. So I really want to lead to, to that point mm-hmm. where they are not sent back to their home country. Well, they're sent to the, they return to the United States to they, continue they, their is, asylum claim.
4: They have no, the Liberals have no control over that. If, with the safe third country agreement in place, they're returned to the United States. They're refused entry to Canada. And in the case of Sidhu Mohammed, uh, he was being sent back to, to, to Ghana. And in that case, uh, certain to face discrimination uh, and, and, and persecution. So th- it's, it's simply nonsensical for Liberals, on the one hand, to say no, no refugee is impacted. We know that they are. As long as the Safe Third Country Agreement is in place and we reject those refugees at the border, we send them back to the U.S., uh, we are allowing U.S. immigration officials And we've certainly seen in Texas and Florida how mean-spirited those states are in terms of asylum seekers. Uh, There is real potential that they'll be sent back to uh, their home countries and in many cases facing persecution or even death. That's the problem. And liberals need to admit that because the reality is we need to have in place uh, an ability for folks to cross a regular border crossing. And as long as a safe third country agreement forces our immigration officials to turn those people back, there is always a risk they'll be sent back and deported to their homeland.
0: Mr. Soberra, I have less than a minute here. But, we, you know, we hear from Mr. Julian, but we've certainly heard it from a lot of immigration lawyers. I know the Canadian uh, Bar Society has looked into this as well as to whether or not the the, the safe third uh, country agreement should actually be suspended, given the fact that the United States has different standards than Canada. And here we are, a country, looking for greater immigration. We've heard that from Son Fraser, the immigration minister. We are looking at a situation where we are uh, up against uh, uh, employers looking for employees and a CPP system that needs more people to fund it if we want to have retirement. Why not suspend that agreement and deal with these refugees on a case-by-case basis as opposed to a blanket uh, refusal for entry into this country?
3: Well, first of all, it, um, what I would say to that is I, I look to the minister's announcement today, uh, which directly uh, focuses on uh, skilled refugees, p- providing a pathway for skilled refugees uh, that wish to come to Canada and, uh, and utilize the skills that they have here in the economy. And just like you said, we, we need uh, immigrants to come to Canada. We need newcomers to Canada in finding those pathways for those individuals to come here to not only contribute to our can- uh, to our economy, uh, to but, but build a family, build a future here for them and their loved ones. And we are encouraging that. You know, we see the number of 500,000 new, newcomers which we're targeting and, and providing pathways, you know, regularized pathways for, for individuals from around the world to come to Canada. And look, you know, we were facing pressure points with Roxham Road, Roxham Road uh, from uh, the provincial governments, uh, the number of individuals crossing. You know, we we know that we needed to act and we acted in the manner which was very prudent, demonstrating leadership, but also demonstrating quite compassion and saying we've come to an agreement where we will now accept 15,000 migrants, mm-hmm. uh, 15,000 individuals Quickly, uh, Mr. to Cerbera. come to Canada and build their future. And and I think that is the prudent thing to do, and that's the right thing to do.
4: Okay, There's well, nothing compassionate about sending people back and turning them away at the border, and that's what the Liberals
0: are doing. Okay, uh, that is where we end our discussion. I do want to thank both of you for joining us today, and uh, Francesco Cerbera, thank you for uh, even pushing through as you're having the eye issue there. So thank you very much for that, Francesco Vera. (laughs) Thank you, Peter Julian. And just a note for everybody at home who are wondering, we did invite the conservatives to take part in tonight's conversation. To the federal budget now, which will be tabled by the finance minister tomorrow, though the issue was top of mind for conservatives today.
1: Raise taxes on paychecks, raise taxes on gas, raise taxes on home heating, raise taxes on food, raise taxes on small businesses. And what does he want to do this Saturday? He wants to raise taxes again. Mr. Speaker. Inflation is at a 40-year high after eight years of this Prime Minister. Canadians cannot afford to eat, heat and house themselves. Will he show a little bit of restraint and commit in tomorrow's budget to no new taxes?
4: The right Honourable Prime Minister.
3: Mr. Speaker, we've demonstrated every step of the way that we're there to support workers, that we're there to support Canadians, and that's exactly what we've done. When we lowered the small business taxes uh, to uh, record levels and even allowed uh, larger growth from small businesses while continuing to benefit from those, uh, we've continued to step up on supports uh, for workers, continued to step up on supports for families, and that has created both economic growth that has benefited everyone as opposed to the trickle-down that the Conservatives still push with tax breaks for the wealthiest, as we have continued to grow the economy in meaningful ways for everyone. You're
0: here. With more, we're now joined by polls analyst Eric Grenier, author and publisher of The Writ. Eric, nice to see you. You're here. So listen, as we look ahead to tomorrow's federal budget, how important will the budget actually be for uh, shoring up or improving government numbers right now?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that uh, while the budget is a huge story here in Ottawa, it's not always a big story for all of Canadians. And so getting uh, in- Canadians to really pay attention to individual measures in a budget can be very, very difficult. The Liberals have tested before uh, trying to see how much recognition there was of some of their individual measures and have found very low numbers. So it is more about the big picture when it comes to that political messaging. It is an opportunity to reset the narratives for the Liberals because they do have an issue. There was polling that was done by Abacus Data that was released today and it found that uh, 23% of Canadians agree that the Liberals have a plan for economic growth going forward, but 42% do not agree that the Liberals have a plan going forward. So there is a bit of an issue there where for a lot of Canadians, uh, they do not see that this government has a long-term plan. So this is a chance to reset that narrative and try to pass that message that overall, uh, the Liberals have the economy you know, under control.
0: Now, how much of that has to do with the the economic choppy waters that we're facing ahead of us, as well as the fact that Canadians are struggling with the price of everything still?
1: It's still a, a huge deal because when you look at all of the polling, it does show that cost of living, particularly related to inflation, is the top of mind concern for Canadians. So anything that looks like it is going to help Canadians meet the bottom line, uh, you know, balance their own books by the end of the week, by the end of the month, is going to be something that's really important. If you think about some of the issues that the Liberals have had a lot more success uh, getting some traction on, it would be things like child care, uh, funding for health care. These are the kinds of things that Uh, might cost a lot of money but they can impact people's lives on a day-to-day basis so i think that is probably what the best focus for the liberals is politically you know there's been talk about whether there'll be more funding for dental care again the kind of thing that people will uh, see a direct impact on their lives i think that is something that uh, the liberals probably really need because that is the biggest concern right now for Canadians.
0: Well, it's interesting when you when you track the messaging around the budget that will come out tomorrow. We were initially getting the message from uh, the finance minister, the deputy prime minister, Christopher Freeland, that there wasn't a lot of wiggle room economically, financially for the government. Uh, but then we were getting the the, the messaging that the buckets would thing would be things like health care and the environment. And now. Uh, more affordability issues, at least some, I guess, trial balloons are, are being put out there for people to signal to people that they are listening on that message. Is that exactly what Canadians want to hear right now?
1: I do think that would be the case, because when you see what the top issues are for Canadians, what their priorities are for the budget, Ipsos just had some numbers out this morning, the top three issues were uh, issues related to the cost of living and inflation, reducing taxes, and spending on health care. So these are all things that cost money or reduce the government's ability to take money in. So uh, a priority right now isn't You know, trying to balance the budget, trying to reduce the deficit in that same polling by Ipsos, only around fifteen percent, seventeen percent either wanted to see reduction in government spending or a reduction in the deficit. So uh, for Canadians, while you know there is a lot of focus on whether the budget will be balanced, how big the deficit will be, uh, I think in the end it is primarily more about what the budget is going to give individual Canadians and less so about uh, the direction that the country's uh, fiscal situation is heading in. While that might be a big concern and might actually be you know one of the more important issues, uh, for the average Canadian uh, that is not really a top of mind thing. So yeah,
0: obviously the budget was written a long time before uh, tomorrow and people have been putting their minds to this for quite some time ahead of its actual uh delivery in parliament but how much leeway does that give the liberals then you know they haven't really been focused on balancing the budget they haven't really been uh giving uh great signals that they would stop spending how much leeway does that give them to actually follow that direction is that a lot of leeway or just a little bit
1: well i think that for the, the liberals right now they are in a, a bit of a uh a troubling position, right? Because the news for the last little while for for them has been uh, very poor. So if they can get something uh, in in the news right now that is more of a positive story, a positive uh, story that shows that the government is doing something for Canadians rather than being focused on foreign interference or other issues like that, uh, then I think that is a win for them. But uh, there are uh, growing concerns about the cost of living and inflation and these have not been going away and they're probably only going to be getting worse between now and the next election. So they really need to be doing something. It has to be pretty big because uh, a nickel and diming uh, for Canadians, uh, their, their cost of living on a daily basis is probably not going to uh, help them out in this situation because of the lack of faith a lot of Canadians have in the Liberals' ability to handle the economy. Because in the polling that we've seen, that was from Abacus Data today, uh, 40% of Canadians said that the Liberals were doing a good, excellent, or acceptable job on the economy. 40% is enough to win an election. But on the actual economy itself, uh, the Conservatives are still polling way ahead of the Liberals, and that is going to be a big problem for them going forward.
0: Well, we are watching it all, including the budget tomorrow, which we'll have here on CPAC. Uh, Eric, thank you for the time today. All right, thank you. That's Eric Grenier. Canada's Auditor General issued her first reports of 2023 today, focusing on the rehabilitation of Centre Block on Parliament Hill, accessibility concerns on Via Rail and with CATSA, the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, and the billions spent by Global Affairs on gender equity initiatives. To talk about all of this, we're now joined by Canada's Auditor General herself, Karen Hogan. Ms. Hogan, really nice to see you and in person this time.
2: I know, it's nice to see you in person.
0: Yeah, nice seeing you in person. So a number of reports here, and you know, let's do something different. Let's begin with, I, I guess, really the report that has some good news in it, and this has to do with uh, the rehabilitation of Centre Block, because uh, perhaps surprising for, for many people to hear, roughly 4 to to uh, $5 billion project, but you say that the costs and schedule looking good, although there are still some concerns.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's really early on in, in the project phase, and we looked at uh, Public Service and Procurement canon and how they were managing the project so far. So right now it's been about design, uh, finding out user needs, and site preparation. So through that process, they've been able to really use flexible approaches to deal with what I would say is a per- persistent Uh, issue with um, timely decision-making we actually saw some decisions example for the East courtyard that took almost two years uh, to be taken and so we recommended that they need to have a a streamlined decision-making process in order to keep things on track now that they're going into the heavy lifting construction phase of things
0: okay good news so far looking towards the future I guess best way to put that Uh, let's move on now too because uh, when we talk about concern there is concern regarding both via and which is of course the, the the border security agency in that they have tried to address accessibility issues or rather accessibility issues uh with with their with their respective workplaces but you say uh, despite those efforts they're still falling short
2: so we we looked at via rail and um the federal organization that does security clearance in the air in the air airports, Mm -hmm. Um, and they have made some progress towards meeting the accessibility requirements of Canada's Accessibility Act, Um, but much remains to be done, and I would put it into three buckets. Uh, The first being uh, websites, accessibility of websites. Most uh, people traveling start their journey there, and we saw some issues with websites. The second would be about certain um, levels of staff not taking the mandatory required training on accessibility. And then finally, the last would be better use of complaint data to really just to just sit back and look at some of the systemic issues to try and identify more barriers to make uh, transportation more accessible.
0: Now, the, the complaint data, is that incomplete, or are they classifying things differently that it's hard to actually measure the progress they may or may not be making?
2: Well, I would highlight two issues with the complaint data. Um, the first, when you look at VIA and um, Katza, I would say that they're, they're really just trying to deal with someone's complaint instead of sitting back and analyzing the data and finding out if there's some systemic continuous problems that are happening. But when it comes to the Canadian Transportation Authority, which is the federal organization that oversees and enforces the regulations, they don't have access to a lot of the complaint data, because it's Maintained by, for example, airlines, um, so they they need to have better access to that, so that they can actually deal with issues. And we saw some differences there between Canada and the United States, where you know better monitoring enforcement uh, could be could be seen here in Canada.
0: And, and I, I think what was troubling, and in, in your report, it actually uh, cites a StatsCan study that says the majority of people with disabilities still experience barriers when they try to travel.
2: Absolutely. We cite a lot of statistics from Statistics Canada in this report. And one of the most common issues that individuals with disabilities complain about is the website. Um, And so really improving accessibility is is a great place to start to to make things better for for people traveling with disabilities or people accompanying them.
0: Mm -hmm. Now another report, it actually uh, deals with Global Affairs, $3.5 billion uh, invested by Global Affairs to low and middle income countries to try to, to improve the outcome for women and girls. And you say despite all that money, there's really no telling how much progress has been made as a result of those dollars. How is that possible?
2: Well, here we looked at Global Affairs Canada, and they manage um, international assistance. It's $3.5 billion a year. We looked over a five-year period, which is almost $17.5 billion. And they were unable to show us how that investment improved the lives of women and girls in low to middle income countries. And I would say it's two things that we saw. Really significant weaknesses with their information management systems to storing, tracking, and using information for decision making. But more, more importantly, they hadn't set themselves up to look at long-term outcomes. They really just measure sort of outputs. So for example, if we, we saw a program about making schools more welcoming for young girls and by building individual bathrooms for girls. And what we saw is they could tell us how many bathrooms were built, but not whether or not girls stayed in school or came to school so really the long-term goal not being not being able to tell us if it had been met
0: mm-hmm, which I guess would be concerning for many Canadians because I think most Canadians can get behind this effort to improve the 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 lives of women and girls around the world but they're hoping that their dollars actually come something comes out of that investment
2: yeah, so we saw things coming out of it, but really it's the long-term objective, right, mm-hmm, of making mm-hmm. the lives of women and girls better, um, that they, if you don't set yourself up at the outset of the design of a program uh, to gather the data that you need, then you'll never be able to show those long-term outcomes, even if they're hard to demonstrate. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and then one one last report here, and this had to do with uh, connectivity in rural and remote er, remote areas. Now, uh, your report notes the fact that things have gotten better, uh, but there there are still what quality and affordability concerns that have not been addressed in in the way the government assesses the progress here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the second time we looked at connectivity in rural and remote regions, and we saw progress from 2018 across the country. But we concluded that the digital divide persists. What we found was actually four out of 10 households in rural and remote areas don't have access to high-speed internet. And that grows to six out of 10 households on First Nations reserves. Um, I I would highlight, uh, when you talk about affordability and quality, we saw that the, the, um, the government Um, tracks some aspects of it but not all aspects so when it comes to affordability they look at the price of services and do a comparison but they don't look at the link to household income and in my mind that's missing half the story if you you can get uh, internet to rural and remote communities but if it's unaffordable for households then they're not going to pick it up and they won't be any more connected than they are today. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the, the major concern here is the very fact that you, you say it in your report, this is now a, a, a basic or rather an essential service for Canadians.
2: I think it's really fundamental and it was accelerated over the pandemic. Um, think about if you've gone online to, to do your banking or to, to buy some clothes, there are so many people who can't do that, can't access healthcare, um, can't do online schooling or even work remotely. Uh, so it, it's. I think they really do need to take the steps because the funding's available, um, but the departments we looked at were really slow in approving funding initiatives and so further delaying rural communities waiting for high-speed internet.
0: Do they need to be uh, more precise in terms of their analysis here? Because I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the number basically says, you know, uh, when you look at it, 90% of Canadian households now do have access to, to high-speed internet. But I guess it's when you break down the numbers and look at the 10% that don't have it that becomes very
2: concerning. Absolutely. The 90% across the country kind of camouflages what's happening in rural and remote communities and First Nations reserves. It's about 1.4 million households that are underserved or not served at all. And just to put that into context, it's like every single person who lives in the city of Montreal not having access to high-speed Internet. That's a lot of Canadians still waiting for what so many just consider essential and basic today.
0: Very interesting numbers to look over and reports to look over. Uh, Karen Hogan, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. And Karen Hogan is the Auditor General of Canada. Well, Harjit Sajjan is the Minister of International Development and he responded to Ms. Hogan's report in the foyer of the House of Commons this afternoon. Do you take responsibility personally for your department not not knowing if the feminist policy works? Well, first of all, um, when I um, uh, was briefed on the Auditor General's uh, report um, in terms of um, uh, the work that is being done, I have visited a lot of the the projects um, and spoken with a lot of the organizations that actually are delivering the projects to see firsthand what are the actual results, what are uh, the outcomes. What we need to do better at, as the Auditor General has, has pointed, it out is be able to gather this 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 work what we need to do is making sure that we have a better reporting process better way of tracking uh, projects